Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hey, everyone. I'm Julie Gunlock, a program director at the Independent Women's Forum and your host for today's Working for Women podcast. Today, I'm here with Jillian Melcher, a senior fellow with IWF, and she's also the political editor for Heat Street, which is an online publication that features news, opinions, and commentary. If you you haven't checked out Heat Street, I, I, I think you're missing out. It's a, it's a great publication, and I'll let Jillian tell us a little bit more about it. Welcome, Jillian. Thank you so much for having me. So today I want to talk about the Paris Climate Accord. I know you've talked about and written about this quite a bit. Um, and, of course, it's been in the news quite a bit lately because President Trump it recently has. yes, yes, recently announced that the United States is pulling out of the accord. Uh, naturally, what followed is a lot of hysterics about how we're we're all going to die, probably a fiery death, uh, because Trump pulled out of this accord. So before we get to that reaction, I, or, or I should say overreaction, um, I'd like you, if you can, can you first tell our listeners what exactly is the Paris Climate Accord? Uh, why, why, are, you know, why is it so important, at least to um, environmentalists and, and members of the left, um, and maybe a little bit on how the United States came to be a part of this accord in the first place? Yeah, so in, in 2015, um, the United States got together at this UN climate conference in Paris. And basically, what the best that they were able to come up with was a non-binding agreement. Um, that means that it's unenforceable. Every country kind of makes their own commitment. It's done potluck style. Um, but basically, they say they're all going to address climate change. So it ended up for the U.S., I think, being a really bad deal. Um, basically, we committed to really stringent uh, cutbacks on, on emissions, um, even though we're, we're not really as much of a culprit as, as many major polluters. And then the big polluters, the people who, in theory, are actually contributing to climate change, um, didn't really commit to anything meaningful. So I think top to bottom, this is a bad deal. The U.S. couldn't enforce it. Um, and, and we were giving up too much to accomplish too little. Okay, so I want to get into what that would, you say these very stringent sort of regulations that we, we um, put on ourselves while other countries really didn't do much at all. But I'd like you to tell me a little bit, you know, it's interesting you say things, these are non-binding, this is a non-binding treaty. Um, but also it's interesting that the UN and obviously many people here. I, mean, I believe the White House calls it a treaty. Tell me a little bit about that because I know there was some controversy. How exactly did the Obama administration go about this? I mean, treaties are supposed to be ratified by the Senate, correct? And I don't think this one was. So tell me a little bit about that. No, it wasn't, and it couldn't get through. I mean, basically, what right. the Obama administration was counting on to pull this off um, was the Clean Power Plan, and under the Clean Power Plan, the U.S scales back um, carbon emissions by 2030 by just this massive amount over 2005 levels. So what this means practically for American households is that we're going to see our electricity bills go up by double digits in almost every single state. This is going to require huge investment in renewable energy. There's no guarantee that renewable energy sources can actually fill that void. Um, but it, it, it's really a major commitment. Um, but if you look at what we're buying from that, I mean, that's, that's a lot to ask of American families. What we're buying from that is the impact on global warming is two hundredths of one degree Celsius. 
2100. Like, that is such a tiny amount. You'd need to have really specialized scientific equipment to even measure it. Um, the impact on, you know, rising sea levels would be a couple sheets of paper. Um, yeah. So, really, we're asking American households to pay significantly more to make really big sacrifices, and the impact on the climate is, is irrelevant. I mean, if, if, to yeah, put yeah. this in perspective, the United States is responsible for about 5% of the world's total carbon emissions. So even if we were to stop emitting all CO2 right now, like every last bit of it, which is basically impossible, it would only have an impact of about 0.15 degrees Celsius. Like that is all we have to work with right now. We're not even doing that. Um, so we're talking so bottom about, line, we're, this is not going to have an impact on climate change. Right. So you're talking about these, you know, couple sheets of paper and 0.01 degrees Celsius, you know, all this tiny, minute differences. If we do everything that the Climate Accord and it tells us to do, again, it's non-binding, but if we, if we stick to that, you know, but we're also looking at a loss of, I've, I've seen estimates, I don't know if you can correct me, but I've seen estimates of like 400,000 jobs and 200,000 of those being in manufacturing. So the very jobs that often go to, you know, these are some of these manufacturing jobs are low-skilled workers. Um, so I, I, you know, I think also the thing, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about, you know, when we talk about a 20% increase in utility bills, when we talk about job losses, when we talk about a 20,000 20, um, per uh, loss of income for families of four, um, you know, $2.5 trillion in GDP losses. I mean, these are some of the figures that I've seen tossed around. How does this affect, let's say, the average family and or really, more importantly, those who live because, you know, it's really the left that's pushing this and is so appalled by pulling out of this accord. And, you know, and, and the left likes to promote itself as sort of caring for the poor in this country and the middle class. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't this impact that demographic more than anyone else? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I, I think there's a really strong social justice case to make against the Paris Climate, Paris Climate Accord. And here's why. Um, if you look at it, Low-income families, um, black families and Hispanic families, statistically speaking, spend way more of their take-home pay on electricity and utilities. So basically, when those prices go up because of regulation, it, it functions as a regressive tax. Um, they're having yeah. to give up more of that tiny amount of money that they have. Um, and for that very reason, if, when you were looking at the Clean Power Plan being pushed through in advance of the UN Paris Climate Conference, the National Black Chamber of Commerce came out about, against this, was saying that this is wow. a disaster, that it's really going to hurt families. So I think, um, you know, it, it would be one thing if, if this were actually going to make a difference. I, I think you could possibly have a discussion about the sacrifice that families should make. But it's really sad because this is going to hurt low-income families, families of color, um, and it, it, it's not really actually doing anything meaningful. Right. So I, I think that's really unfair. You know, uh, Julian, you know that I run this program at IWF called the Culture of Alarmism Program, and this is a perfect fit for the Culture of Alarmism because naturally after Trump pulled out of this treaty – um, or agreement, I guess we should call it. Um, but I do like to call it a treaty and, and then, like, you know, remind people that it wasn't even ratified by the Senate. But so when, when Trump pulled out of this, you know, there was this sort of narrative out there in the mainstream press that, you know, we're all going to die. This is horrible. This is a big disaster. But, but you know, and so I, I want to address that issue itself. Look, mm -hmm. it's, and maybe you can, and I know that you've talked about this before, companies are already – 
figuring out ways to reduce carbon emissions. Tell me about sort of America's track record on this, how we're doing on this, how we're doing on, you know, addressing climate change and all the, and how businesses really care about this and are doing more. I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is this even really necessary? I don't think so. I mean, we've seen billions of dollars poured into renewable energy through government subsidies, but the real game changer in the last decade has been um, hydraulic fracking. Uh, right. Another really controversial topic, but here's why. Um, basically, it's opened up these massive natural gas reserves, and natural gas is way less carbon intensive than coal. So it's, it's crowding out the energy market. We're using natural gas far more often than we're using coal, and as we're doing that, we're seeing carbon emissions in the United States plummet. In fact, if you look at it, we have the cleanest air, I, I think, in two decades that we've had. Oh, yeah. That's not oh, because absolutely. of regulation. That's, that's not because of government subsidies. That's because of this market innovation, um, well, I, this thing that we're, we're having the U.S. market, uh, U.S. inventors come up with. It, it has been the game changer. Well, I want to talk just very briefly about that and expand on that just a little bit. You know, it's interesting to me that when you do talk to people who are very, very concerned about about um, about climate change, and you know, I'm I'm actually I'm I'm actually a person who says, yeah, you know, I do I do actually think that the climate has been changing. I, I think some of the um, efforts to change that are are very bad or stop it mm. or are useless. We're just not, I mean, I, and, and I, I do, I, I do sort of, the thing that concerns me is this, these sort of hysterical reactions that again will lead to 400,000 job losses, 20% increase in, in electric, electric bills for families. I mean, these are like, these are measures. And again, when you're talking about, you know, lowering the ocean by a couple sheets of paper. So I object mainly to a lot of the, the so-called solutions out there, but you know, I think, when um, when you when you talk about these issues, for instance, with someone who's who's sort of committed environmentalist, and you bring up maybe some potential s- solutions like fracking, like nuclear power, um, you know, then they <laughs> object to that. And so, I I do I I do feel like you can never sort of please um, the Greens and the environmentalists. Who I mean, really, again, this is where I think the word regressive is really appropriate. Where there's just they they believe in no um, human innovation, like nuclear, like um, fracking, will will do any good. Whereas I think those are, in, in some ways, the solutions to some of these concerns about carbon emissions. Yeah, I think you're right. And I mean, in a perfect world, we would be able to have all the energy we want with no no carbon impact. Um, we don't live in that world. Nothing is risk free. So I think within that, you look at what's practical and, and what are, what are the trade offs. And basically, I think what we got from the Paris Climate Conference was a huge expense and a minimal impact on the environment. Um, so I don't think that's a compromise that, that most American families are comfortable making. Um, I will say the other big objection that I had to the Paris Climate Conference and the agreement that we reached after it was looking at China. So I, I actually lived in Beijing for a while. I remember the pollution being just astounding totally changed my mind on a lot of environmental issues. I mean, when your lungs hurt after walking outside for five minutes, when you can't see the top of a building because it's so hazy out, um, you get a sense of how people can impact the environment. So I'm not naive on that. But I think this is another sticking point about why this is such a bad deal. Um, Under the Paris Climate Agreement, China said that they were going to stop increasing carbon emissions by 2030. 
So to put it in different words, what that means is that Beijing is going to continue allowing emissions to increase for another 15 years. Um, so basically what we're, what we're seeing is China, which is a major polluter, which does have legitimate environmental problems, gets a pass to be dirtier, while the United States undertakes these stringent, stringent matters that don't actually have an environmental impact. And by the way, if China doesn't do what it says it's going to do in 2030, the United States has no enforcement mechanism to hold Beijing accountable. So I think that's part of the reason that as, as an act of diplomacy, um, this, this was just unaffected. It's not going to accomplish what we want. Well, listen, Jillian, you have been very helpful in explaining these issues. I, I think sometimes um, there are, uh, you, you, you hear about, I heard a lot about, about you know, the, the, the Paris Climate Accord and, and was a little bit confused. So this is very helpful. You've been very helpful um, explaining this issue to us. I really appreciate you coming on. For those listening, if you're interested in other podcasts, go to iwf.org. We have them all listed there. And we have a lot of other information on other issues. So check us out again at IWF.org. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by IWF.org for similar content.